0: Today's episode of May the Record Reflect. What's
1: going on in that first minute, that first 30 seconds when your adrenaline is rushing? Figure out what the audience can see, because if you are blessed with something like a nauseous condition when the adrenaline rush hits, I'm, that's bad, but we can't see that. So unless it's affecting what the audience is perceiving, you may be able to just get away with it. But if your hands are shaking uncontrollably, well, then we're going to have to figure out a way to rechannel it, and some of this is, becomes very personal. How do you rechannel that energy? How do you rechannel that adrenaline? What can you do substantively to rework the presentation so the easier material is in the front end during that adrenaline rush?
0: Welcome to May the Record Reflect the podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Buckmelter, and I'm glad you're here as we open our second season. Our topic this time is around communication skills for trial lawyers, and so I'm really pleased to say that our guest today is Rebecca Diaz Bonilla. Rebecca is a longtime Nita faculty member who teaches at both our trial skills and motion practice programs. And she wrote a book, now in its second edition, that Nita published in late 2018, entitled Foolproof The Art of Communication for Lawyers and Professionals. Maybe the best way to describe this book is that it's like a personal laboratory in which Rebecca breaks down the theories of effective public speaking and translates them into daily or weekly exercises so you can learn to quiet your nerves and focus on crafting your message so that it lands. And the reason that Rebecca is so well positioned to write on these topics with authority is because she spent the last 15 years as an international communications consultant. She travels the globe to work with lawyers business executives and politicians, bold print names in the news we'd probably all recognize, to help them develop their public speaking skills. So I wish to extend a very warm welcome to Rebecca Diaz Bonilla. Thank you, Marcy, thanks for having me today and I'm always
1: thrilled to be part of Anita program.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you too. I want to start with asking you about your background. I know that most people come into the law typically with an academic background in political science or English and writing, history, philosophy. But yours is theater. How exactly did you pivot from drama into law school? Well, I had
1: taken the LSATs when I was an undergrad as a as an insurance policy, so to speak. Happened to go to a great undergraduate school. And frankly, was living in New York and did not want to be a starving artist anymore. So I applied to law school and ended up loving the law as an accident. So it turned um, into a career and started as a litigator early on, and then quickly stayed home to start raising kids. And was afterwards asked by the University of Virginia Law School to help create communication courses. For both litigators and non-litigators. And that's how I started creating the coursework that has now created a lot of the substance in in both of my books, but also in my trainings and teachings and, and how I developed coaching system
0: for my clients. So I'd like to read an excerpt from your book, Foolproof. Some attorneys are proudly offended at the idea of an attorney acting. In reality, however, we all act. In most day-to-day activities, we pretend when we behave a certain way or hide our emotions. When a senior partner or client required or asked you to attend a function at 6 a.m., you pretended you didn't mind and you smiled at the function. You were acting. When the judge berated you in a packed courtroom for interrupting a witness, you took a deep breath and responded civilly. You were acting. When the client decided to take her business in a different direction that materially changed the agreements you had worked on for months, you pretended not to mind. You were acting. Now that is such an interesting reminder that indeed we all do alter our personas as a, a little bit to function well with other people. And it reframes the idea of trial as acting in a performance. But then people hear acting, and of course, they have a negative response that it's inauthentic, it's a put-on. So my question to you is, what qualities do trial lawyers need to cultivate to keep that facade from seeming inauthentic or fake?
1: I would say a, a few things, and really they're virtues. There's good old-fashioned selflessness, so recognizing that the other person needs to be comfortable and they don't wanna see you grumping around, for example, if you're meeting them at the train station at 6 a.m. Civil society demands that we act not necessarily exactly how we feel. So putting aside our own feelings and thinking about the needs of others and then putting on your best self when you need to. It also is so important to develop this particular virtue, especially when you're trying to represent clients, because you may be personally offended by something a judge says, or opposing counsel says, but it is not in the service of the best interest of your client to get upset or offended. And so you've got to let that go and learn how to control your own emotions. And those reactive emotions are just as important as our proactive emotions and how we're coming across When things are coming our way that we don't like or that are distasteful or uh, that we find repugnant, we've got to manage things and, and learn how to deal with it on a very intellectual level. And when I work with clients and try to convince them that actually learning self control with your emotions allows you to be freer intellectually so that you can make rational and reasonable decisions in the best interest of your clients, most people who are lawyers they understand that need and realize that emotions can definitely get in the way if you don't figure out a way to control
0: them and be a master of them when you need to be. So then what traits do make a lawyer really unlikable in the in the courtroom? <laughs> I've
1: se- I've seen so many that I I want to boil it down to two, I would say pride and disrespect. So pride is Statistically, and when you look at studies of how trial lawyers come across to juries in particular, when they act conceited, when they are smug with a witness or act like they're far more intelligent than everyone else in the room, they're instantly unlikable. And in the same way, it shows great disrespect to a judge, a jury, and a witness for a trial lawyer not to be prepared and not to have taken the hard time to condense a lot of complicated material into the most clear and concise bits. That takes hard work. And I have found that juries are very unforgiving when they see that the lawyer did not take the requisite time to prepare so that their hours served on that jury are respected, and that they're getting a great performance from a professional during a trial.
0: People remember how you make them feel. And that's a, a great illustration of that. For sure. For sure. And I think that, that again, that
1: other-centeredness, becoming self-aware for a trial lawyer is so important so that you're able to stay attuned to what, what are each and every one of those jurors thinking? What's the, what's the judge thinking? How are they feeling? How is that witness dealing? With being up on that stand and being asked questions. And the second you act pompous and disrespectful, you lose the case for your client.
0: It also seems like it's really not to your advantage as a trial lawyer to play into all of the negative stereotypes that people might have as trial lawyers to begin with.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, there are very few of us that look like TV stars. And very few of us that have that look that could be put on NBC and CBS dramas. But there is something to the problem that trial lawyers face, that there's an expectation that trial lawyers are that slick and perfect, and we're not. Mm -hmm. So you do have to also deal with the expectation that the bar is literally very high for trial lawyers to perform and to put on an entertainment And oftentimes lots of stuff that's in a trial is not that fun and it's not that interesting. So it's important that you use as much technique as possible to bring energy, to bring interest, to uh, boil things down to digestible sound bites and to have takeaways for the jury so that they are entertained, so to speak, as they're sitting there and serving us as they make decisions about the outcome of our clients.
0: Well, that's the perfect entree to my next question. Uh, You talk about in Full Proof that a trial performance is sort of like a Broadway production because it's the really big show. It's the one that gets all the attention. But then you remind us that when it comes to communication, most of our performances are not actually in the courtroom at all. They're, as you put it, off-Broadway. They come in the form of small group meetings or presentations lectures, phone calls, even just a one-on-one conversation. And as you further point out, we experience different communication levels with these different off-Broadway productions. So one person might not have any trouble chairing a big meeting, but they're uncomfortable making a phone call. While others are really good with a scripted presentation, even in front of a large crowd, but then they seize up at the idea of having to respond on the fly during a Q&A session that follows but nonetheless all of these performances have in common the goal of transmitting a message that lands with the audience with the desired effect so with that in mind what are some of the bad habits that you most often see among trial lawyers that inhibit their ability to land that message So I'll throw out
1: the the four pillars that I'm always looking for with with trial lawyers and really with anyone communicating, confidence, credibility, clarity, and likability. So I'm looking for those things when I'm evaluating and helping coaching a trial team. Credibility, you you see lawyers blow it all the time when they maybe misspeak or they, they fudge a record and they don't immediately correct themselves. It is a marathon to practice law, and it is not worth blowing your credibility over some tiny little minute win that you think you're going to get by shading the truth or, or not correcting a record when opposing counsel makes a mistake that's in your favor that's just not accurate. So credibility is huge. And every opportunity that you can take to regain if you've misspoken or to establish your credibility should be taken confidence is one of those things that if you don't show confidence, the judge, the jury, the witnesses, opposing counsel will certainly not have confidence in your client or your client's position. So it's up to you to be that gladiator and to be confident both in your position and also in your pride of representing that particular client. One of the things that we have to do that I try to help clients do is when we are in trial, we're trying to figure out what does this particular lawyer believe about this case that's true and right and good? And we have to boil it down to the very basic thing. Even if you're representing a hardened criminal and a vicious crime, you can at least come down to a basic tenet of this person deserves of defense. And that can be what, what sails you through a trial so that it's deep and genuine and you have confidence in your representation of that person and you showcase that through your belief in the process and in the right for that person to have a defense. So you've got to dig deep to figure out what those things are and keep it confident. In terms of clarity, I mentioned it before, but I'll, but I'll say it again. It takes a lot of work to make things clear and concise. And, and that is, is boiling down messages. It's figuring out what's my branding going to be in this case. How am I going to come out with themes that are memorable? How is it that a judge will remember my arguments at the water cooler, at the coffee pot later today? We have to make sure that we're doing the hard work of of writing things with interesting hooks and lines and buzzwords so that we are remembered and it's clear and it's understandable. So making sure that that likability, the credibility, the confidence, and the clarity are in check for any trial lawyer is key.
0: Uh, It is indeed a marathon, as you said. Another way that we communicate with one another in a professional setting, and one mode that I actually want to talk about for myself because I find it so challenging, is video conferencing. I wonder if you could talk about what the basics are for that. So I like to acknowledge that it's both a wonderful technology, but it's
1: also tricky and it is subpar to being in front of someone. I will also say that there are certain things in the development of techniques with the voice that are wonderfully worked on when you're able to be on a telephone call without video conferencing. So that there's no one looking at you and you can have all your messy exercises out and while you're running a call, you're able to do vocal techniques and and try new things and have post-it notes with your themes. And there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do to improve your, your substance development, your body language, even when that camera is off to try new things. Hey, what if I stand up? Does that change my voice? And what if I gesticulate during this point? Does that sound like I'm more passionate about this particular case? So there are limits to what is good about a video conference and when you should learn how to turn it off. But when it's on, it is tough to properly have a video conference that looks as real as in-person performances. You will naturally be downgraded in terms of your energy level. You'll look flatter. You'll come across as not as interesting. There's always audio challenges. So one of the things I like to tell people to do is pump it up when you're in a video conference. If you perform one-on-one at a an 8 of 10, think about trying to inflate and exaggerate things, bigger gestures, a little more volume, to maybe a 9 when you're on a video conference. Except if you have live people in the room and you're on a video conference. Because then I'd want you to just be genuine and you and be yourself around the people that are live in your room and that mixed group of in-person and video conference, the video conference will get the worst of you, but you wanna make sure that you're genuine for the people in front of you. The other thing I would say is eye contact is quite tricky. So whenever you get in a room and you know you're gonna be video conferencing, if it's not necessary for you to have eye contact, then don't worry about it. But if you're trying to make it look like you're in person with the audience on the other side of that video, figure out where the camera is and make sure you're looking at the bottom part of the camera, the bottom lens space of the camera, and not always at your own image or at the image on the video screen of the other person that you're talking to. Of course, you've got to check and see what their uh, their body language is doing. Are they listening? Are they still with you? But if you want to make it look like you have eye contact with that audience member, you want to focus your eye contact on the lower end of the lens that's picking up your video capture.
0: That is really wonderful advice. Thank you so much. Another problem that I have with conference calls, which don't have that visual component that the video conferencing has, is that you can still find yourself inadvertently interrupting people or accidentally talking over them because the visual cues are so easy to miss. So I wonder what is the best way to jump in without jumping on?
1: there are fantastic and hilarious youtube videos that mock conference calls by the way and i encourage everyone listening to find some some lonely time at night to look at these cuz they're so funny and just poke fun at this hilarious workforce and modernity that we're we're trudging through and video conferencing and call conferencing can be terrible terrifying and terrible and not helpful at times but Um, I would say this first, sometimes interruptions are good. And there are reasons why we should interrupt. So don't be fearful of interrupting when you need to. If everybody is looking at a stale version of a document, and you have the latest version, it's helpful to jump in and say, hey, let me circulate this, let me interrupt, because otherwise, you're just wasting people's time. So there is a right reason to interrupt. And then there's a right way to interrupt. If there's a lot of people on the call and people do not know voices, one thing that's helpful is to interrupt and say someone's name. So if you were talking, Marcy, I would interrupt and say, Marcy. And then offer what your question is, interrupt with your quick little comment, and then get out. Otherwise, it's a, hi- it's a hijacking instead of an interruption. I see. That's great. So you get in, you get out. And I don't often, if it's a super quick interruption, It's an art whether or not you apologize. Part of that is how well do you know the group? Part of that is, is this person of a higher rank, so to speak, than you? Is it the client? Then I would definitely apologize for interrupting because interrupting is rude. But if it's a collegial group, you're always on this Monday morning call, you know each other well, and there's a, a good flow and respect, you may not need to apologize for interrupting quickly and then handing the baton back to the person who was speaking
0: know your audience. You wrote another book for Nita called Point Well Made, which is all about oral advocacy in motion practice, and you wrote that with Judge Nancy Vedic of the Indiana Court of Appeals, and she too is one of our wonderful faculty members. So, I wonder if motion practice has taken on a greater role in the pre-trial practice as more cases are settling before they actually go to trial. Well, as a plug for
1: Judge Vedic, you, you just can't get someone more professional and, and knowledgeable about both motions practice, but also oral advocacy in general. And it's an honor to be able to, to work with her and continue to develop material and to have written that book together. And it was just a ton of fun to work with one of my favorite people on that project. It is more important than ever in my estimation, for a litigator to know how to properly talk to a judge and argue a motion than to even try a case because the latter may only rarely happen. I see so many people in private practice that never get to try a case. Now, let's say you're in a government job where you're a prosecutor or public defender and your job is to try cases all the time. You still cannot get away from motions practice. Motions practice, while annoying at some levels, is also a great uh, confirmation and surety for defendants that they get a fair process and that they are timely dealt with and that the hearings allow them the opportunity to be heard about specific issues. And it's important that counsel knows how to run hearings well and how to win them. So whether you're in private practice or you're a government lawyer or whatever NGO, whatever, whoever you're representing, motions practice is critical. And I find that it has to be second nature to lawyers nowadays, because so many things settle. You can know how to try
0: a case, but you may never get the chance to. How do you need to communicate differently when you appear before the court on a motion versus appearing at trial? Well,
1: trial is, in a fun way, it's a fresh audience. So it's opening night. You, When I go to coach a trial team, let's say I'm a jury consultant for a jury trial. The first time I evaluate that team, I request not to get any of the pretrial papers, nothing. I, I ask them to just let me come in and see blind the opening statement. Because that allows me with fresh eyes and ears To evaluate how a juror might see and hear this and whether or not I get the the facts of the case, I understand the legal implications, and I can make a decision about what works and doesn't work. When you're arguing a motion and when I coach motions, I ask for everything the judge would have seen up to that point because I want to go in with the eyes and ears of that judge so that I can have a, a better understanding of how they will see and hear the case, whether it's a multi-panel or a single judge, magistrate, or whoever it is. So so part of it is the background and recognizing the complexities of a emotion versus a trial, and also realizing that the trial is, is so many different genres plugged together. You have to know how to introduce evidence. You have to know how to do demonstratives. You have to know how to talk to a jury. You've got to know how to talk to a judge. You've got the audience of a witness. You also have to deal with your co-counsel, your opposing counsel, and then the well of the jury. If you've got press around, you've got so many things going on. It's its own circus unto itself. A hearing is, is an opportunity to hopefully zero in on an issue. And it's a fun way for a lawyer to also dust off those legal skills and actually get into the crux of the law and talk, talk about something at a higher, more complicated level than you would necessarily appropriately talk to with a jury. And the preparation for them are quite different. So it's important to learn both skill sets. And I am encouraging more and more young lawyers to sharpen their motions practice skills first, because unless you're a prosecutor or public defender, most of the time, if you're in private practice, you are gonna be asked first to go and handle a motion or a portion of a motion before they're gonna unleash you to go try this huge case in in some sort of private practice realm. So getting your motion practice skills together is so essential today in the US.
0: How do we get better at extemporaneous speaking, Uh, answering questions that are posed to us by an expert such as the judge, or responding on the fly to in cross-examination? Well, first, I I am such
1: a fan of preparation. The best litigators I've ever worked with leave as much to chance as they can possibly avoid. Nothing is left um, undone, unprepared. They are wonderfully prepared so much that it looks like they did not prepare. And they're able to look spontaneous, but every single word is thought through and well-oiled. So I would first say, leave enough time to get to that preparation zone where you know exactly what you want to say and you are less dependent on notes. You want to shift as much content out of the spontaneous and unexpected into the prepared zone. So that means you've got to leave a lot of time to get ready for emotion motion or a trial. And it means you have to know your stuff cold. And then once you've figured out, okay, but still, you're going to get questions that you don't expect. You're going to get objections from opposing counsel that you don't expect. There are things and techniques you can do to get better at spontaneous communication. For example, polishing off a few generic starter lines or transition lines, kickoff phrases that you can use to buy yourself some thinking time or thread together one thought to the next something like that leads us to, or that's symptomatic of. Those are lines you can use to thread together ideas when you're trying to come up with the right answer. And the other thing I would say is in spontaneous communication, it's so important to be bold enough to admit when you don't know something. So knowing that you have various options to answer a question, you've got yes, no, maybe I don't know, or a choice. It's so important that you're bold enough to say, I don't know. And you don't fudge the truth that you're always clear and truthful. And that honesty is going to win you such ethos with the jury and with the judge, with an expert or whomever it is. But you've got to have the courage to say you don't know, but you're going to find out. You'll give them a brief later, whatever it is. But it's important that you're honest about what you do and you don't know when you're in the courtroom.
0: That is excellent advice, and I appreciate that you gave us all permission to admit that we don't know. That's a, a vulnerable feeling, and especially if you're a trial attorney, you're there fighting for somebody else, and you want to look like you've got everything well within your control. Absolutely. Now, unless you have a loony
1: judge, which, by the way, sometimes you do, they they, they think you're a different case before them, they've forgotten who you are, you've got to refresh the judge. But if questions come out that are that are unexpected, I usually say, you've got one, maybe two I don't knows in a motion, and they better be far left field questions from a judge. But you can say, I don't know if you don't know. And you should say, I don't know, because you don't want to fudge it and make anything up.
0: In the second edition of Foolproof, which just came out about a year and a half ago, you introduced a brand new chapter about communication issues for women. And I would like to find out what the key differences are between men and women in the way that they communicate.
1: We might need three other hours of podcast to discuss the intricacies of that. Mm -hmm. I, I celebrate both men and women and love to see the differences and the strengths that they bring to the table. And I think there's nobility in both. I also think that there are stereotypically meeting in the middle attributes that all people have that are good best practices for communication skills. Everyone should be able to project their voice, whether it's high or it's low. Everyone should be able to confidently hold themselves and have a carriage that looks energized, whether you're a man or a woman. But there are certain things that are unique to men and that are unique to women that make them special and make them powerful. And And I tend to look at those things as positives, and I try to bring those out. And where I see things that are stereotypically not working, I try to help men and women fix those things and and renovate those techniques and habits. I do think that um, there are things that we can learn from each other that men and women can learn from. I love to see women learn how to expand their space physically to compete with the natural space that men generally have bigger physiques. So we've got to figure out as women, okay, how do I expand my gesture box? And how do I increase my my space at a table if I'm seated so that I can compete with the guy next to me in the room? How do I deal with teleph- telephonic communication and know that men's lower voices sometimes have a, a, a nice resonance on the phone? That... If I have a super high voice, I may not have that resonance and that power on the phone. So, so how do I harness my natural toolbox, the gifts that I've been given, and the attributes of my gender, and then steal a little bit from um, someone across the aisle and figure out what can I do to round out my technique and be a better communicator all around?
0: So, what do you think men then can learn from women about communication?
1: Well, I'm more and more, unfortunately, in, in the last few years, see men um, worried about being men. I think they feel like they're going to be beat up for, for being masculine. And I think there are masculine things that women can learn from. And there are, there are feminine things that, that men can learn from. So I think men can learn uh, to listen, to own when they make mistakes a little bit more, and to give credit when credit is due to the right person. So I think those are things that men can can do a bit better. I think women can learn from men um, how to jump in there, how to use the first person to own language instead of always using team language. It's okay to say, I did this. I made that switch instead of um, the DOJ hired me, which is reflexive and passive. Instead, there are ways to be bold and first person without being cocky. And I think we need to find that sweet balance by, by acknowledging good things that the opposite gender does and, and try to incorporate that into your technique if it fits your personality and your physique and all those things.
0: What advice do you offer clients who are dealing with jangly
1: nerves? When someone gets nervous, and most people get nervous... It's important to diagnose how long your physical adrenaline rushes are. So, people can get different surges of adrenaline rushes that create nerves. Obviously, the beginning of any presentation or speaking engagement is one of those big ticket items where most people have an adrenaline rush and it's shooting through their bloodstream and it changes the way they operate. Some people have ending adrenaline rushes, they see the finish line. And they get a little bit nervous and they get a little surge of adrenaline. I've seen people get these middle adrenaline rushes, sometimes because they forget where their transition is, where they're going next. But you see these little waves of adrenaline rushes. So first you got to figure out when do your adrenaline rushes happen? How long do they last? If you are one of these brilliantly gifted people who have these 15 second adrenaline rushes, well done you and congrats. If you're in that sad position that you have a two or three minute adrenaline rush, you might have to figure out some creative ways to deal with that surge of adrenaline that's going to last that long. And that can be a tricky thing. Once you figure out how long your adrenaline rushes are, when they happen in a presentation, typically then you want to figure out, well, what happens to me when I'm hit with that adrenaline? Do I get a foggy brain? Does my heart race? Do I feel nauseous? Am I struck with shaking hands? Does my lip quiver? Does my voice shake? What happens to me? Does my leg twitch? You've got to figure out what it is. And that takes a lot of self-assessment and honesty. And frankly, this is where smartphones are so great because we can go into our office, shut the door, and mock up a presentation and see what happens to us when we get nervous. So we can look at an objective video capture of what happens when you start that opening statement, what's going on in that first minute, that first 30 seconds, when your adrenaline is rushing, figure out what the audience can see. Because if you are blessed with something like a nauseous condition when the adrenaline rush hits, I'm, that's bad, but we can't see that. So, unless it's affecting what the audience is perceiving, you may be able to just get away with it or a racing heart, for example. But if your hands are shaking uncontrollably, well, then we're going to have to figure out a way to rechannel it. And some of this is, becomes very personal. How do you rechannel that energy? How do you rechannel that adrenaline? What can you do substantively to rework the presentation so that easier material is in the front end during that adrenaline rush? If we can't re-channel, can we erase the habit? Is there a way to change it so that it's just not there anymore? And if it's not, well, then how do we hide the nerves? And hiding it's just, I can go in and assess someone, look at their physique, look at their voice, listen to their voice and figure out, here's some ideas to personally change what I'm seeing is going to make the audience feel sorry for you that you're nervous, because that's what we want to avoid. We don't want the audience, no matter who it is, the judge, the jury to look at us and feel bad for us, that we have to be up there and, and be shaking and nervous or have our voice vacillating. So we've got to be able to, to rechannel, channel erase, or hide those nerves. And a lot of that work is personal, figuring out specifically what's happening and then what's going to work for that particular litigator to make them feel more comfortable.
0: So you really need to learn how to become an observer of your own self and What makes that challenging is you have to end up doing so much of this thing that is kind of terrifying to you. It's like um, almost a form of exposure therapy where you decrease the amount of anxiety that you feel in a particular situation by continuously putting yourself out there until finally you're okay.
1: Absolutely. Repetition is so key. I mean, you want to get to a point where it's rinse and repeat for a lot of this stuff and that comfort level will will come. And you see that in litigators that are so seasoned, they get up there and they feel good in a courtroom. They feel at home, they know how to do it. And so it's been a a career spent with that repetition so that their nerves aren't gone, but they're controlled. And the nerves get changed into
0: energy which is where you wanna get to. It's thrilling to see that actually. Do you ever still get jangly nerves before your own speaking engagements?
1: Oh, sure. There are times when I'll get asked last minute to come and speak at something or or to hand out an award or emcee something or come do something. And I, I maybe didn't have any time to prepare. That just happened to me a few months ago. Someone called and said, hey, can you come do us a favor? When is it? In an hour. okay. So I walk in and I don't know what I'm going to say. And it takes a few minutes for those improv techniques to kick in and for, for me to just be able to go out there and riff. But there's a few moments where I'm nervous and, you know, you just learn to deal with it. You learn what your own piccadillies are and you figure out how to control them. And then that's the key.
0: Is doing improv really helpful to, to a trial attorney with taking a class or joining a, an improv group, help develop that kind of. Ease in front of a crowd and the ability to think and speak and compose a good argument or something on the fly. Improv is amazing. There's actually
1: been in Lawyers Weekly articles written about how beneficial improv is for litigators. And it teaches you spontaneous communication and what to do when you mess up, because everybody's going to mess up. And so, improv is one of those ways to figure out when I've blown it, how do I rescue myself? And there are, in big cities, there are improv houses, if you Google them, that have improv classes that are specifically designed for lawyers and professionals. It's not comedy hour. It's learning how to mess up and recover. And it's a fantastic tool to to train yourself in an environment that at first seems really scary, but actually it's very freeing and it's very safe because everybody's there in the same boat and it's risk-free. Nobody's videotaping you. It's all fun. And it's a way to learn a lot of spontaneous skills and speaking skills. While at the same time, really increase the flexibility of your mind. What can it do when you mess up? And how do I recover? And, and what are some avenues to get out of this
0: tangle I've, I've created? That sounds like a really valuable way to, to build those skills and also goof off and have a little bit of fun. I want to transition into a A question that I think about a lot, and that is the role of digital communications. You know, we've all got smartphones, we we text, we have social media, and we communicate with people all across the world. People will never meet, people we don't know. There's Instagram stories and Snapchat and YouTube where really anyone can be a star. And so my question is, how have these different forms of media affected our oral communication skills. And do you find that it translates into people being more at ease or more comfortable with public speaking or creating an effective physical facade and talking on the fly?
1: Yes and no. I think the ones who are willing to put themselves out there have different motivations for being on social media. Some are good and some are not so good. And I, I happen to agree with Lady Gaga, actually, that social media is the toilet of the internet. And the more waiting in that sewage that we do, I have found that does not make someone a better communicator. In fact, because so much of that social media is, is accessed through the smartphones that we're now so addicted to, I find the younger generations of lawyers have um, degraded their ability to communicate with humans instead of their devices. And you see that in small talk skills. You see that in witness interviews. You see that in depositions. You see that in the ability to just get up and talk. So I don't find that there's a correlation to better communication skills. The more savvy you are with social media, I find the opposite.
0: So that's fascinating, because one of the next uh, questions I wanted to ask you about is how things are different for um, the younger generations, millennials and uh, Generation Z, who are digital natives. Um, They have lived out part of their lives online on a huge, literally a, a global stage, and they have a bigger audience of people who either really like them or people who really hate them. They tend to be more open and conversant about some of the personal struggles that they faced, things that might have in the past carried a stigma. And they just integrate those experiences more fluidly into their identity than members of older generations. And they fight for work-life balance, and so I wonder then if there are any other ways that you've noticed that members of different generations communicate.
1: I, I go and give talks on generation gaps. so I so this is something that's near and dear to my heart because I I hope that we can reach a point where we can learn from and absorb the best practices from generations and have a better appreciation. I think there's. Too many haters out there. And some people want to stifle the developments of some of these Generation Xers. And some people want to throw the baby out with the bathwater with these baby booners. And I just see that as a wrong way to go. I think there are great things about different generations. And the goal should be to pick up on what each one does best and absorb it into our own communication style. I am not a fan of the filterless communicator. So, you know, one one negative thing I would say about those who are are digital natives is that they tend, as a stereotype, but they tend to have lost the virtue of modesty, which traditionally understood was just keep things private that should be private. And I find that it undercuts your ability to be professional if you're not able to do that. I'll give you an example of oversharing that's very simple. I mentioned this in my book. A lot of times I see that younger lawyers will give me too much detail about a conflict they have for work. Instead of just saying, I have a meeting at four, so I can't have the call then. They'll tell me that I have a meeting at four because I'm meeting my boyfriend or I'm taking my kid to the doctor or I'm, it's information I do not need to know. And if they had just said, I have a meeting, it is truthful and it also, leaves me with the impression that this person is very in demand and very busy and on a professional level in demand is good that's what you want in economics you want supply to be low and demand to be high so we want to create that sense for people to need us and need our work because our work product's so valuable and oversharing sometimes busts that up a bit older generations i find have Um, a long way to go to be more responsive to younger generations, in my estimation, right uh, way of thinking of work like balance and how important it is to do away with a very unhealthy balance that used to exist for those older generations as lawyers that burnt them out and destroyed families. So finding a way for older generations to listen to younger generations to be more creative, to not be um, giving into entitlement mentality, but really being flexible about how to get good, talented, hardworking people who want to have a private life that's valuable and, and wonderful. I think across generations, we need to be more sensitive to each other and we need to listen and be better advocates for each other in um, and really find out what's possible in order to bridge those gaps of generations.
0: Good advice, not just for the lawyers in the crowd, for sure. Uh, we are starting to wind down the interview. And so I've got just a couple of fun questions. And the first one is directed at you as a person with a drama background and a professional communicator. I was wondering if there's a particular public figure, whether past or present, whose elocution enthralls you.
1: Ironically, because of the the timing of him passing away this weekend, I had recently been really obsessed with Kobe Bryant's public speaking work that he had done and super interested in the career shift. I mean, he, he closed the door on his basketball career and then won an Academy Award for his documentary on basketball and went around the world trying to do motivational speeches for kids and uh, for disadvantaged groups of people. And I have found both the written transcripts of those speeches and then his performance of those speeches to be so excellent technically. I was very impressed. And in addition, His interview style is remarkably good. So even if you find someone who, I I won't name certain presidents because I don't want to out them, but certain presidents are really good at maybe interviews and not so good at speeches, or they're fantastic at speeches, but not really great on interviews. I was fascinated to look through the Kobe Bryant archives and see that he was just great at both. He was so genuine, so passionate had a, a moral code he was able to communicate to others without sounding judgy and instead really inspiring people to be better. I, I was quite dazzled and and so sad for the tragedy over the weekend. But but that's who I had lately been admiring.
0: That is not the answer I was expecting. So that's uh, that's that's wonderful you came up with a surprise and Be sure to check the show notes where we'll include some of your favorite clips of Kobe Bryant doing public speaking in interviews and addresses. So my last question is the typical fun sign-off question, and that is, Rebecca, how would you spend a million dollars?
1: I would pay off all my kids' schools. That's what I would do. I would send them all to school and pay for it.
0: All right. I hope it happens for you. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. It might take more than that. But yes, I think that's what I would do with it. A million dollars is a good start. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, Rebecca Diaz-Banilla, thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your expertise with us. Communication is just an absolutely fascinating topic. And as always, it was really fun talking to you today. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to purchase Rebecca's books, Foolproof or Point Well Made, and fine-tune your own communication skills, please see the show notes for today's episode for those links. And while you're at it, please subscribe to May the Record Reflect wherever you tune in to your favorite podcasts. Please visit nita.org to learn more about the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll catch you next time. May the record reflect is Anita Studio 71 production.